Rock Spectators podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in London with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hello, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Joining us to discuss all that's new in the world's biggest archive of music journalism is the delightful Mick Gold. Welcome, Mick. Hi, Barney. Good to be here. (laughs) In this episode, we're going all the way back to the early 70s to talk about pub rock, Bruce Springsteen and Let It Rock magazine. Mick wrote for that marvellous publication from 72, 73 to 75 and also photographed uh, everyone from Cream and Hendrix to Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Since then, he's made award-winning documentaries for Granada TV and the BBC, including 2013's Blues America. Mick, I have here, right in front of me, the April 74 issue of Let It Rock, which was probably more responsible than anything for my becoming a music writer. It includes your long retrospective piece about the band, about whom I'd become obsessed the year before. And it also includes Richard Williams's top 10 tracks, Phil Hardy's Rock Fans Guide to Country Music, Dave Marsh on Dylan, Pete Wingfield's Soul Column, and a gloriously irreverent Lester Bangs review of Credence's Live in Europe. And I remember <laughs> reading them as if it was still 1974. Tell us... <laughs> how you came to write for Let It Rock and how you fell in with that crowd and who they were. Put them in context for us. Well, I was at Sussex University from 66 to 69 doing English literature. And being the 60s, there was a course on contemporary Britain, which meant you read a lot of books on sociology and you went into a lot of English contemporary drama and you had to write a dissertation at the end. So it occurred to me I was going to do a dissertation on Lennon McCartney, which I called I Want to Hold Your Hand, slash I'd Love to Turn You On. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, the, the, the tutor on the course was overjoyed, said, what, really good idea. <laughs> and I wrote this 5,000-word essay on the development of Lennon McCartney, and, and, and it got a good grade at the end. But that obviously started the thought going in my head. You could write about this stuff seriously, and it was interesting. And somehow I connected with a bunch of people who came from Sussex University. Dave Lang and Phil Hardy came from Sussex University and they were getting together with Charlie Gillette, who had just enlightened us all by publishing this amazing book called The Sound of the City, which I also read, which was the first serious history of rock and roll that I'd read. And it's, it's, it's to this day, I think, an astonishing book, yeah. the way he's able to talk about... How, I mean, because people just generalised before Charlie. I think people talked about the blues, they talked about rock and roll, and Charlie was so specific and so analytic, and he talked about different urban centres. He talked about New York, Memphis, Chicago, New Orleans, who recorded there. And he talked about this tension between the independent labels and the major labels, which was responsible for a, a huge amount of the history of rock, how, how a maverick like Sam Phillips could record in Memphis and change the future of American pop music. So I guess... What was extraordinary for me was these guys really knew a lot about the history of pop music, unlike me. So there was a guy called Mike Ledbitter who, who ran Blues Unlimited mm. and who was an incredibly, incredible fount of knowledge about blues. There was Charlie Gillette, there was Phil Hardy who knew a hell of a lot about film history and Dave Lang also had an encyclopedic knowledge. So this magazine started and we were all, you know, in our, in our early 20s and just beginning to set out on the road of rock criticism and... I remember Charlie Gillette was a really nice guy, very generous, very knowledgeable, always always eager to share things with people. And I think his, his personality infused the journal. Dave Lang wrote this long 
academic essay in 2010 about Let It Rock, and you're quoted in it. So I'm just going to quote <laughs> your slightly less romantic view. My personal sense of that era was that we were a bunch of hard-up left-wing writers and intellectuals pooling our energies in order to subsidise the flatulent corporate bear moth of the record industry. Working for little or nothing, we exploited ourselves and our commitment to music to take our first faltering steps into a career in the media. But I think the punchline is that last sentence, first faltering steps into a career. We actually did get something <laughs> exactly. published. Yes. We actually, you know, yeah, we, and, 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 and it's, you know, you think back to those times and every, every one of us, I think, can remember there's a moment where somebody opens yeah. the door, yes. something happens, something gets published, a TV documentary gets commissioned. Yeah. Well, you went on to have an you know, extremely, you know, acclaimed career as a as a television director you've made some amazing films and martin did you read let it rock as I, early as i did or when did I you think discover so yeah. i think so i remember coming back from a holiday to see my relatives in canada and i remember i was at a folk festival the mariposa folk festival with my cousins and there was a rumor that bob dylan was there and so everyone started getting very excited and kind of wandering around and i, and I had a camera and i wandered around the corner and walked right into bob dylan and then I stepped back, obviously, <laughs> some paparazzi gene in my... And started taking pictures. So when I came back to London, I went to Let It Rock to see Dave Lang because I thought, oh, well, maybe these are the you know, most recent pictures of, of Bob Dylan. Oh, they, yeah. they weren't good pictures. Dave was very nice, but not very interested. And then Michael Gray was working there. <laughs> Michael Gray was in the room. And he said, oh, I'm doing a book on Bob Dylan. Can I buy those photographs off you? So that was kind of like, oh, yeah, great. Do we have to have you on the podcast to discover these amazing things? <laughs> I mean, I've known you for donkey's years. But the last few times you've come in, you've told us things that have just made my like, eyeballs Bombshells. pop out of my head. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's my friendship with the charters, Sam and Anne charters. Yes. We're aware, you know, you had access to kind of things like the Newport Folk Festival and, you know, recording studios and kind of fascinating stuff. And, you know, whenever Sam was over here, he would be recording in sound techniques with John Wood. Mm. And so it was an open invitation after school to go and hang out at the studio. <laughs> so it was, I, I just I just thought that was the life. Yeah. <laughs> Being yeah. a musician and yeah. having nice people trying to get the best out of you. Because yeah. John and Sam worked really well together and they were recording you know, people like Stefan Grossman. The deeply unpleasant the Stefan Grossman. Yeah, I have to say, that is true. And uh, I, I watched them give Richard Thompson a terrible, torrid time for two hours trying to get him to play like a session man. That didn't really work because that wasn't what he was, you know, but... That was, of course, the studio that Nick Drake had recorded everything. Of course, yeah, so. yeah. Mark, as someone who's loaded a lot of <laughs> rock pieces into the Rocks Back Pages library, what is your what's your sort of take on well, the I, magazine? I mean, I'd been buying Zigzag since I guess about 1969, right. and the, there were no other British rock mags, at least that I was aware of. And then it feels like it was in months with each other. Let it rock and Cream, spelt E A M, the yeah. British magazine. Bob Houston, right. Both seem to launch at more or less the same time. I yeah. could be I could be wrong about that. They physically looked similar. They were a sort of a, the A4 glossy cover sort of thing, and it was serious writing about pop music. And I was very tediously interested in serious writing about pop music. So it was great. I mean, you know, neither of them lasted very long. Uh, Let It Rock lasted three years, longer, significantly longer than Four. Cream. Seventy-two to seventy-five. Four. Four. Yeah, mm. 
But, you know, I mean, the enemy was going through the process of becoming what it became. It was actually, you know... Mid-metamorphosis. It, it was. The, 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 the rice and the underground press were joining the enemy and so on and so forth. We were all moving collectively away from Melody Maker, which was just kind of a thing, even though Melody Maker had fabulous writers like Michael Watson, Richard Williams and so on and so forth. And these magazines are part of... All of that, you know, it was like an expansion of our reading. We didn't really, as outside of Rolling Stone, we didn't have access to the, the American magazines. Cream, unless you really wanted to go down to Old Compton Street to buy import copies, yeah, you didn't so get in this country. Mm-hmm. You know? I, thought, I thought Rolling Stone had an enormous impact on me. Sure. In terms, in terms of the style of the writers and what, yeah. they, what they carried, the, the way they did serious articles on culture, cinema, politics. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, the, I mean, the reason I knew about the band and music from Big Pink was I was... I was in the States in the summer of 68 and I bought Rolling Stone and there was a review of music from Big Pink by Al Cooper. And I remember the last lines of the review, which was something like, this record was made in approximately two weeks. There are some people who will live their life in vain and never touch it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty good good review for your first album. And I I went and got it. And, of course, in America it had this beautiful gatefold sleeve in which it had, there was, on the inside, there was a picture of the band and all their families, all their cousins, grandparents, (laughs) uncles, children. So it, 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 it was a very... Interesting statement at odds with what yeah. the counterculture stood for in 1968, which the Jim Morrison, you know, screw your mother, kill your father kind of counterculture. This was this was Indeed. something something that affirmed tradition and community, and of course that was how the music came to life. Also, I think really important in, in London at that time was Charlie's radio programme on Radio yeah, London, yeah. Honky Sonk, which introduced me to huge amounts of stuff. And he was, he was, as you said, such a nice guy, Charlie. He, you know, he was everyone's friend, really. I mean, and such an enthusiast. Yeah. I mean, and again, the, the, you know, it relates to the band as well, is that a lot of us were trying to kind of find things to listen to which weren't prog rock, which weren't sort of and so on and so forth. And we're going to talk about pub rock in a minute, and that was very much part of the same sort of process. So getting to read about stuff like that, or in Charlie Gillett's show, listen to hear, like Johnny Allen's version of Promise Promised Land, Land, you know, was, 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 was a revelation. Music. Was, was fantastic yeah. and just such a relief from... I mean, you know, I think we all love Bowie and so on and so forth, but none of us like glitter rock people. You were to some extent, well, because you were younger than us. Well, yeah. I mean, the reason this issue particularly, because I was, you know, I was, it was the summer holidays, well, it was the spring holidays, it would have been Easter holidays, April 74, and I was in Suffolk, and WH Smith in Sudbury, Suffolk, this this issue was there, and I bought it for 20 pence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> at that point, I probably was still into glam rock to some degree i think it was fading a little bit and i was getting more interesting things like and i had bought rock of ages by the band the revelation for me was realizing that there was an intelligent writing about such a diverse mix of subjects and eras mm-hmm. you know yeah, there yeah. would be pieces about reggae there were pieces about doo-wop mm-hmm. incredible pieces yes. that penny real wrote in in let it rock yeah. and that were just like wow and then probably lester's sort of very damning piece about this Credence album was probably the first thing I ever wrote by Lester. So it was just like, it was a belly full, that, that very mm. issue. That was the first piece I remember reading about the band. 
Right. And a serious long right. Piece and it was of sort writing. of archetypal less it rock in a way because because I had bought Rock of Ages and become obsessed. But I didn't really know much about Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks no. and all that. So you, your piece was the real window. In, in into a that. sense, that it was also the, the beginning of historicism or sort of historical. I was about to ask, view. where do you think that impetus to take that whole thing more seriously sort of to look originated? At, look at the history yeah. of the. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, we'd sort of reached the end of one cycle, hadn't we? And people were starting to take stock of what kind of yes. Elvis and Sam Cooke meant. What, what he's yes. Thinking, what, yes. So I think that's a really good. And what is it about taking it seriously that grabbed you at the ages of, like, you know, teenagedom, rather, you know, because it is quite, we're talking about intellectual things, we're talking about, you know, historicism, that's not necessarily, like, the pop stuff that you might think that a teenager would be gravitating no, towards you know, more naturally. You're right, I'm not sure. I, well, I think a lot yeah. of, there, there were journalists, and then there were the people who'd come out of universities who were more academically inclined, yeah. and I think maybe Let It Rock... If you've Definitely. all been at Sussex, there's a kind of thing where it was different from magazine writing, wasn't it? it wasn't yeah, I ended up writing my thesis at art school on the connections between Dada and punk. And uh, yeah. I managed to misspell the word attitude throughout my thesis, <laughs> and given the fact it, it appeared every other sentence. <laughs> hey, How did you spell it? <laughs> the, the double T in the wrong place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and as a typewriter, so you didn't oh, sort of no. like, you know. But Mick, what would your answer be to that, given that you were writing it, we were consuming it, you yes. were writing it? What was your, what was your, what would your theory have been then? Well, a bit, uh, close to Martin, though, yeah. we come out of universities and we were beginning, popular culture was beginning to be discussed in a serious way. Yes. And I think I think Rolling Stone was very influential. The number of the number of different voices it, it published, and it certainly had a big effect on me as a as a writer and somebody who was obsessed with pop rock music, and somebody like Real Marcus who'd come mm. out who'd, who'd come out of American studies, and and yes. he, and he around about this time he he, he published Mystery Train, right. which was. An extraordinary book, um, yeah. it, because I, I think it's called it's called mythological images in American music. Yeah. So there's Robert Johnson, there's the band, there's Sly and the Family Stone, there's Randy. Well, it was Newman. actually seventy five, wasn't it, Mystery was it, Train? So it was yes. slightly, well, it was when, slightly when, later. When when did uh, Gillett's when did Sound of the City Gillett's book was seventy seventy one. I was going to say because yeah. my yeah. brother I think gave that to me in seventy two or seventy three, one of the early the paperback hmm. edition, and hmm. uh, that for me was very, we mentioned this earlier. It's the very first glimpse of the history. Of that I'd ever had yeah. as a sixteen-year-old. You know, this is yeah. like whoa. This is this. Is, you know. And Marcus's, but where where there were footnotes and there were playlists and there were, you know, one-off singles that never made it outside of New York that you then wanted to go and find somehow. And then Charlie Gillett would play them on. Who, yes, and then <laughs> Charlie would play them. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think Charlie had gone to the US to research um, yes. a, a PhD or a master's That's thesis, right. and he ended up. Turning it into into yeah. into this extraordinary the sound of the city yeah. the, the birth yes. of rock and roll which get, got fantastic reviews in the American music press I mean that, that that's I yeah. love that that you know I'm reading kind of you know ancient copy of Rolling Stone and there's a rave review of Sound of the City in it saying this is what you've got to get to understand where we got where we came there from. is a yeah. fantastic set of CDs that Charlie did much later. Like in the nineties, I think. Sound, Sound of the City, Sound of the City, Chicago, Memphis, and uh, which do give you this. Ex- I mean, make a soundtrack to the book, but they are kind of if you want a one-stop shop for, <laughs> for understanding yeah, American music, they're amazing. Absolutely fantastic. So you you wrote mainly for Let It Rock, but you also interviewed, for example, Patti Smith for Well, that Street was after, after Let It Rock collapsed. Um, yes. Let It Rock ended at the end of 75, and I still had a few ideas. And I think it was, was it Bill Henderson at Street Life? Was, 
yes. you know, a guy I knew. And, and somehow I got a commission to write a profile of Paddy Smith. And I went and met her in the Portobello Hotel. And I happened to go. There was a room full of journalists. And one of them was Bob Shelton, the legendary mm. Bob Dylan biographer. Yeah. So Paddy was absolutely overjoyed to meet Bob Shelton. It was like touching the hem of the, <laughs> the, the man. Who, and, then, and I think I remember Lenny Case saying, wow, Bob Shelton, you're the man who discovered Bob Dylan. And Shelton drawled in his New York drawl. I didn't discover him. I think I saved him about 10 minutes on the way. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Excellent. Very good. Um, you also took a lot of amazing photographs. And I can see in front of you the book Rock on the Road that was published in 76. And it's very, it's very sort of Let It Rock, isn't it? All the writers are pretty much people you knew from Let It Rock. But there's these wonderful, well, they're photo essays, essentially, aren't they? And, you're, and these wonderful black and white photos you took. Tell us about, about Rock on the Road and what prompted that. Well, I started taking pictures of musicians at Sussex University. Chuck Berry came to play, mm. Jimi Hendrix came to play, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band turned up at Lewis Town Hall. I took pictures of all of them, and I and I enjoyed it. And I thought that this is this is something interesting. I, I might be quite good at this if I if I work on it. And and you had to find ways of increasing your film speed because most of these guys are performing in almost total darkness. So I remember there was something called Kodak Recording Film 2475, which had an ASA rating of a thousand. And if you and if you played about with the development times you could sort of push it and push it and push it. So so it, it ended up with a very contrasty black and white grainy look which yeah. i liked yes so i mean after sussex i actually went to film school at the royal college of art and i was saw myself as a aspiring filmmaker but it took a very long time to break into film or television it was very hard yeah, yeah. so there was a period like between 72 and 78 when um let it rock came along and i was mainly doing rock journalism and photography and i was at the rainbow theater practically every weekend along with jill fermanovsky and penny smith and photographing everybody I could and trying to sell the pictures to Melody Maker, Time Out, anybody. And you managed I, to hang on to all of your negs. If you thought you've got everything archived. Yeah, yeah, I kept all the negs. Yeah, that's good because one or two people have lost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you mind my asking, do you make significant money from these photos? I know they're. It, with- it, it's declined. I mean, I mean, there was a moment when I fell in with, you know, I had all these photos and then there was a moment round about. 1990 when i noticed one of my pictures of pink floyd in a magazine and it said david redford library and i thought that's funny so i phoned up david redford library and there was a nice guy there called john i said this is my photo and he said oh, that's very interesting i'm glad you told us you must come and t- show us your photos tell us more about it and then in fact i'd sold the photo to emi and it somehow fell into their filing cabinet yeah. but after that i gave my <laughs> right. photos to david redford was a jazz photographer yeah. who decided to start a um, music photo library yeah. so he had his own library going and during that period, when I was with David Redfern for about 10 years, it seemed to me there was quite a lot of money coming in. And then round about the year 2000, David Redfern sold his library to Getty. That's right. It became Getty Images, and, and he retired and went to live abroad. And um, what I've noticed really about the return on those images is it's gone down and down and down because they're being used in an online context. The, the days when you got 500 quid yeah. because they were in an advertising campaign – have gone. And I mean, I had an experience of this at the beginning of this year. David Crosby died, and I looked at the New York Times online, and it was my photo of David Crosby on the front page of the New York Times. And I thought, wow, I've made it. I'm on the front page of the New York Times. So I waited for my Getty statement to arrive, and, and, I, and, and it arrives after two months. And I looked, and lo and behold, the New York Times played Getty Images 
$50 for the use of the photo. I get 30% of that. So I ended up with $15. Um, yeah. Have a drink Jeez. on Dave. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, 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 <laughs> That's what you get for being on the front page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To briefly digress into, I mean, the, there are certain photographers who covered certain scenes who haven't gone with the agencies, I mean, people like Kevin Cummins and so on and so forth, mm. who have actually managed to significantly monetize the fact that they photographed Joy Division and mm. so on and so forth, right? Actually, Kevin is now with Getty. Is he? Yeah. But, but I would imagine but he, he's still, he's still he's, he has print his, sales. Like yeah. his, 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 his big things right. is print sales. Right. You know? I think that's uh, the only but way But I mean, to the make, problem yeah. is now with all those big agencies, is it's a subscription model, so it's pile it high and sell it cheap, yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can use... Of course, and, you know it, all about this. It used a, to be a big thing where you, if it was a cover, it was £1,000. If it was a double spread inside, it was 500 and a single page, 250 Now... They don't care how you yeah. use it. I didn't get I a mean, penny. You'll just pay. I've yet to receive a penny from one of the pe- writers I photographed winning the Nobel Prize for Literature last year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the legs? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, the other person was Jill Fermanovsky started rock yes. her rock archives. And so I, you know, I, I, I very much like what she was doing. She was almost using like Magnum photography as a model. She would get the best of rock photography and yeah, yeah. sell it as prints. And so I, you know, I, I met up with Jill, and, and she's got about about ten of my images now. And and so they they do sell, and there is an right. income from that. But it's not a huge amount. But I guess I guess what what led me to create the book was. That after you've spent like two or three years photographing lead guitarists on stage, they start to look very like each other. <laughs> and I thought, I thought there must be some way of bringing some variety into this world. So then I thought, I started to think photojournalistically, and I thought, yeah. and in fact, it was Dave Lang who gave me the idea. We talked about it, and he said if you started to focus on different communities, mm-hmm. you would get different kinds of fans, and that's what I did. So we covered Doctor Feelgood because they were, they had just gone pro, so they were at the bottom of the ladder. And then we covered Slade because they had this amazing kind of following of, of school kids, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids who made their own costumes and dressed up in their own uniforms yeah. to come to the concert. So it's, it's interesting that really. often it's the photographs of the stuff that's around the band or the band backstage or the band, you know, going to lunch or whatever that... I mean, not going to lunch. Yeah. What band has lunch? Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's wonderful pictures of David Bowie yeah. on a train eating breakfast. With and how it's very, very hard for someone to do that these days because yeah. everyone's doing it themselves in so yeah. that, that that documentation yeah, yeah, is taking yeah. up, coming from within the communities. Yeah. You know. yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Let's talk about pub rock. Um, <laughs> I just want to quote from that same Dave Lang essay in which he says, the magazine, Let It Rock, was very keen on what was later called pub rock. Almost all the main bands were featured, starting with Bees Make Honey and Brinsley Schwartz in 1972, up to Dr Feelgood, with words and pictures by future filmmaker Mick Gold, and Ducks Delights and the Cursal Flyers, etc., etc. And he makes the point that Let It Rock disappeared really before the arrival of of punk in London. So I I do remember, along with sort of amazing pieces about Jerry Lee Lewis and Sam Cooke and so forth and Lassie Rock, I, there was always something about a band like Charlie and the Wide Boys. Yeah. Um, or, or very yes. differently, like Kokomo, you know. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, because actually it's quite a... We think of 
pub rock as being quite sort of one-dimensional, but it, it was really a broad church in many ways. Yeah. So as it happens this very week, I think next week, uh, there's a new book about pub rock called Before It Went Rotten by Simon Matthews. <laughs> very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think it's actually the third, maybe the third or fourth book about pub rock. It's yeah. amazing, um, considering how commercially unsuccessful <laughs> pub rock was. Yes. Um, which publishers are commissioning these books? <laughs> <laughs> I've mean, got a bridge I'd like to wonderfully <laughs> named No Sleep Till Canby Island. But, so you wrote this fabulous piece about Dr. Feelgood and took great shots of them. Tell us how you remember the pub rock era and specifically what Dr. Feelgood's place was in that story. Well, I was just looking for a new band, a band that had just turned professional to yes. just start off the book. And somehow I came across Dr. Feelgood and I went to a gig and I was just captivated immediately. Their music was so punchy, so direct... Wilco was such an extraordinary yeah, yeah. visual phenomenon. So, I, you know, I fell for him. I wrote about it for Let It Rock, and then they fell into place as the opening chapter of the book. And I, and I was remembering when, when, when I looked at the book, I mean, they were just fun to write about. I mean, John Collis in Let It Rock described Wilco as a clockwork dervish. Mike Flood, Page and Sounds called him a zomboid yo-yo. Mick Farron in the New Musical <laughs> Express speculated they have the kind of look that makes it possible to believe they have come together in a singularly unpleasant section of the army. Nick <laughs> <laughs> Head described Wilco as tailor-made to play the title role in a borstal production of Hamlet. <laughs> so everybody enjoyed writing about it. How did they go wrong? Yeah, I mean, if you had to describe the music from those descriptions, I don't know that you come close to what it was. <laughs> I saw them a couple of times at Hope and Anchor, I guess around 74. and then seven, but, but it was a small stage. And then in 75, they played Roundhouse, probably the biggest show they'd played up to that point. And for the first time, Wilco had a big enough stage to actually really... And it was electrifying. Yeah. It was so good. Don't like the records. Don't like Lee Brillo's voice. Oddly, I mean, I bought Down, by the jet, down with Jesse and played it like a handful of times and just ditched it. But alive, they were really, really. Well, their best album is probably Stupidity, isn't it? Yeah. Which is the live album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, compared to a lot of the public bands that we've mentioned and that I saw, I would see them on Sunday afternoons at the Roundhouse or I saw Chili Willie at the ULU. Right. So I must have seen about. 20 pub rock gigs i never saw the feel goods but most of those bands were there was something so sort of like modest and self-effacing about them it's like we do not want to be successful we just want to play in pubs yeah right and And consequently there was very little showmanship i mean those bands just go up plug in and play the southern brothers and quiver well they weren't really memories come back i wouldn't really call them a pub i saw them on i saw saw them on a pub so they played rock but they were none of them kind of were Apart from the feel goods, feel goods were really electric. And Eddie and the Horrors. Eddie and the Horrors. I've got a story about Kilburn and the High Roads. Charlie uh, Gillette said to me one day at a Let It Rock meeting, he said, he said Mick, I, I'm, I'm starting to manage a band. Yeah, of course I, said, he I said, really? He said, yeah, <laughs> you, you like taking photos. Do you want to come and see us next Friday at the Kensington Pub? So I, I went down to the Kensington Pub on Friday evening and there was this band setting up. And they were setting up this beautiful drum kit with, like, really vibrant three-dimensional letters saying Kilburn and the High Road. And there was this strange, misshapen Richard III-like creature down the front, <laughs> sort of ambling around. And I, I said, you've got a beautiful drum kit, haven't you? And he said, yeah, um, mate of mine done that. 
I said, really? He said, yeah, he's a painter. I said, oh, what's his name? Uh, Peter. I said, oh, Peter the painter. Um, what's, what's his other name? Uh, Peter Blake. <laughs> and I thought, Peter Blake's doing the lettering on this drum kit. And these guys have got a bit of class. Because <laughs> yeah. he was a student of Blake's, that's, 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 that's right. Yes. Well, I mean, Ian Jury, obviously, just fascinating character. And, and we were talking before we started recording about the sort of transition from pub to punk in a way. And there are there are a number of key figures, aren't there? Joe Strummer in the 101ers, Elvis Costello in Flip City, Ian Jury and Kilby in the High Roads. And and to something also I mean not yeah, I mean like Graham Parker and the Rumour were never a punk band, but they were a sort of Well Brinsley Schwartz Rumour Brins- basically Brins- were Brinsley Schwartz, Schwartz. Great sort of chunk of them were exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so so you you did have that. I mean the, the one oh one has had virtually no impact. It's purely I saw them playing the yeah, Stonehenge Free Festival in 1975. <laughs> Confessions, the one has when to make. When you could get to Stonehenge. When you could get, you get to Stonehenge. Close to you could actually get, yeah. Did you uh, stand on the Stonehenge? No, I drove down in a friend's car. She <laughs> was dressed like posh. she just stepped off King's Road. And I looked like a complete double denim hippie, you know. <laughs> she was going, this is beautiful. I was going, bunch of fucking hippies. Um, <laughs> but, but, but the 101ers were electrifying because he was electrifying. This was a different, this, this, when you instantly see someone think, this is a different beast. You know, Joe this Strummer. Isn't, this isn't, uh, Joe Strummer, yeah. yeah. The great thing about pub rock, uh, if you were 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 and you were at, you know, college or something, it was fantastic. It was very cheap. Cheap, yeah. It was very cheap. The beer was cheap. You know, you, yeah. you'd nurse a lager and lime for the entire evening. Yeah. In fact, once I was watching Kill the Kill and High Rose and I, I put it on Ian Drew's monitor and he said, Oi, four eyes, get that beer <laughs> off my fucking amp. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And it was, uh, but they were great because yeah. they were you were you were seeing them. You, you know, they, they might change members between seeing yeah. them once and seeing them twice. And I always thought it was really funny. There were there was definitely a section of them that were very Americo files. Yeah, like Chili Willy, Eggs Over Easy, yeah. Bees Make Honey. Cool. They all had this kind that was of country rock eagles. End of it. There, was the, of, there was the R and B side, which is Kokomo yeah. people, and Kokomo basically Joe Cocker's old Grease Band. Yes, they were like really, a soul band, weren't yeah, they? They were because I remember this tour: Doctor Feelgood, Kokomo, and Chili Willy. Yeah, yeah. It was called the Naughty Rhythms yeah, Tour, yeah, yeah. and it was an attempt to market these. It was Jake these, these Rivera's yes. brainchild. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was an attempt to take these acts out of the pubs and onto a bigger circuit yeah 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 kokomo were fantastic they were. i mean they were really fantastic and, and very interesting they had like cross-dressing backing singers i mean this is pre-trans well, lead singers which i think always yeah. stood it uh, held them back really uh, but, they were but, quite unfocused kokomo uh, but they were amazing i forget the name of the guy one of the singers he used, used to basically cross-dress and, and diane birch was one of the singers she was, she was yeah. fantastic yeah. Was alan spenner you know um really 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 great band yeah. mention eggs over easy because most of the sort of the history of pub rock of the kind that simon matthews is talking about in his in his they were the first book is like it started in 71 at the tally ho right in kentish town with (laughs) eggs Eggs over easy who were american yes and Schwartz, who survived this sort of humiliating experience the new york the 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 film fiasco like dave robinson who with jake rivera co-founded stiff they went to see Eggs Over Easy, and and it that was sort of the birth of it. And Brinsley yeah. Schwartz hopped on that kind of band. Yeah. I think, oh, yes, yeah. I think pubs before then it, it all been always been jazz. 
It was always a Sunday jazz afternoon. Jazz or folk music, um, Irish home. music. All right, right. yes. Right. So right. what is it that makes, we joked about earlier, it was rock and it was in a pub, but what yeah. is it that makes pub rock pub rock? Well, again, in a sense, what we were talking about earlier is it's a reversion to sort of stuff, which, stuff which people already understood how, yeah. to, how to sort of do. It's like, so it was, mm. it was like Memphis rock and roll, you know, it was R&B, and country rock. I mean, yeah, um, I, you know, I kind of that. I really much. I got that into that end of it. Chili Willie, in particular, partly because I was a bit of a Grateful Dead, a huge Grateful yeah. Dead fan, and also I was a really, really love good guitar players. And, and Martin yeah. Stone was an absolutely fabulous That's guitar player. You know. So it was very nice threads. to be able to stand five feet away from people. Too. Yeah, because most of these bands did not have record deals. Yeah. Or they had very small records. And some of them didn't even appear to want to. Have uh, yeah, there's th- that too. But but it was a, like a really working musician thing, and I think if you're in America, you, you could go into a bar and there'd be a band mm. playing. That yes. was not true over here yeah, uh, yeah. until that era. I don't, you know, the, the next step up was the college circuit, and then you really pretty much had to be a signed band to get onto the college circuit. So this is a place where unsigned bands could play for the first time, really. And there were loads of venues. And there were loads of. I mean, I was familiar with Southwest London stuff, even the Kensington, the Greyhound, uh, uh, and then I'd go up as far as. The Hope and Anchor, but I'd never reached like Tuffnell Park or Kentish Town, or, you know, the, the Bullet Gate and whatever it was. But it was this this collection of the, these yes. pubs, yeah. Victorian pubs. Victorian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mick, by the time you were interviewing Patty, and I saw Patty at the Roundhouse with the Stranglers, who I'd also seen at the National. So that was that was the I couldn't get in. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, I mean, did you think once? Once, you know, horses had come out and the first sort of inklings of UK punk were, were happening, that, that sort of pub rock was, was, was on its way out, really. Did you think Patty was, was, was a harbinger of some, something? Patty seemed to be extraordinary. She was, yeah. like, unique. Yeah. Because she was babbling about Rambo and having hallucinations and yeah. she had this kind of band that just improvised around her so it was more like it was more like a happening out of the out of the east village wasn't it and of course they included to do a history of american rock, rock critic yes on lead guitar yeah it was it was fascinating wasn't it fascinating time there's also of course bruce springsteen in the in the middle of all this happening and the reason to talk about bruce and listen to a bit of bruce talking is that this week is sees Bruce Day is happening on um, <laughs> it's happening on Saturday I think it's Bruce Day in New, in New Jersey um, I suppose they can't call it BS Day <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately it's coincided with Bruce having to cancel all the all his September dates because he's suffering from a peptic ulcer so all his September dates in America have been cancelled but we thought we just we don't we've not had a Bruce Springsteen audio on RBP before we thought it was high time and David Camp sent us this excerpt from an interview he did in 2016 which turned into a Vanity Fair cover story mm-hmm. and thought that it might be of some use to us and we were very appreciative and so Mark tell us a little bit of what, what well, you gleaned it's, a, it, from it's entirely about Born to, essentially mm-hmm. about Born to Run but the song not even the album or the song he talks about how he adopted the cliched imagery of rock girls, cars and so on and so forth and adapted them to his own much more sort of personal ends and about how using that sort of language as a web as a currency with which you connect people very directly and 
He talks about, you know, it being a very personal song lyrically. Interestingly, David Camp keeps saying bits of it, oh, bits of it about your father, and Bruce saying, I hadn't thought of that, but now you come to mention it. <laughs> yes, possibly, which is pretty good. David sort of asks him about where Bruce was, because it's 1974, and Bruce, we'll, we'll listen to the clip in a sec. I mean, he talks about how, I mean, it's to do with the disillusion of the 70s, that the hippie dream had just ended. Uh, later on in the piece, he talks about wanting to write American music, guess what, getting away from the British influence, which had ruled so much of American rock up to that point, and how the band, the, he and the band, were both pre- and post-hippie. That They were pre-hippie and they, their musical roots were Spectre and so on and so forth, and the, the 1960s of the girl groups, and they were post-hippie in terms of where they were at as people and, and so on and so forth. Let's listen to this My band is pre and post hippie in a yeah. funny sort of way. You yeah. know, we really come. You know, there's a counterculture element that just came from growing up at that time. Mm. You know, but I think there was also a suspiciousness of it because we came out of a small town right. where. Uh, a lot of people went a different way, you know. Like I was saying in the book, my brother-in-law is a man of the 50s. Uh, and he's lived his life like that. Mm. I have a foot in there myself, you know. And a foot in the other place, you know. So I, in the book I say, well, maybe I didn't fit in either. Or maybe I simply fit in both. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, he's an immensely articulate and interesting man to listen to. You know, I mean, he talks about how important the song became to, is to is still still to the stage show. How it says that it, the song has grown and developed meanings which weren't there when he first wrote the song. You know, just just by the fact that the way in which audiences respond and so on, it's aged very very nicely for him. Uh, he also talks about hang on, how the song is good. Let's have a listen to the, the, the next clip. This is come very much about the song itself. I mean, when we get to that first cascade of uh, sprung from cages out on Highway Nine, chrome wheeled fuel injector, it just so it, it's such a beautiful cascade of words. Yeah, it, you know, they worked well, you well, know. They sing well, is what I mean. They, well, it has, if, if, if things don't sing well, you're done, you know. I mean, I've, I've often sat and tried to squeeze mm-hmm. something that seemed impossible to fit into a particular melody. And, you know, uh, that's a big, big part of it. You know, something is, not only does it have to have meaning and... Uh, you know, in the end of the day, it's music. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's musical, and it has to be musical. Both the way the lyrics fall, uh, uh, you know, what they mean, and how they sing. How they sing is a big part of their meaning. People are feeling the flow, right. you know, of of your lyrics, and they're responding to to that just innately, you know. Suicide 
great. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember, sitting in a little class with, with, with <laughs> Professor Springsteen. I love it. But that, I mean, that track made a huge impact on me when I first heard it. But I was think I was beginning to think this is an amazing work of synthesis because the way in which the words, the images cascade obviously reminded me a little bit of Bob Dylan and the, the sax sounded like King Curtis mm. and the sound sounded like Phil Spector yeah, and yeah. I, I thought he's put all this together into this contemporary yeah. sound yeah. well I mean you've got it I mean in the way he, I mean, he, he actually talks about Bob Dylan David Camp says you know I mean, he, I, he even David Camp sings some Springsteen lyrics but in, in Dylan's Dylan 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 voice much to yeah. Bruce's amusement yes. you know? yeah. you're right because I, I think that I mean, I've, I've heard things like Greetings from Asbury Park and so on and so forth, and thought there's just too many bloody words here, you know. Yes. Um, and that really put me off. I never really got into Bruce as, as a consequence. Of yeah, that. same here. Yeah, but you're right. In a way, Born to Run is a one where it works, where mm. he's sort of, and he just in that clip there, he talks about that you can have these words, but none of it makes sense if it doesn't if the music isn't right. If it's, mm. if you, if it doesn't you can't, scan, if you can't sing them. You know, yeah, so, um, so important. Martin, you saw Bruce at Hammersmithian, f- famous. Yes, show. yes. Is London right. ready for <coughs> Bruce Springsteen? Yes. When, when, yes. when he tore yeah. down the posters, he rampages yeah. through the theatre, taking everything off the seats <laughs> and uh, all the CBS leaflets. So before you saw that show. What did Springsteen mean God, to you? Or how did you view him? And how did you hear I him? Had the, I was working at Dobell's and I got Wild, the Innocent, and the Eastwood Shuffle. And I became obsessed with that record. And then, of course, there's two years between that and Born to Run. And, Born to Run. and there was also that period where he basically, his early career is not a simple thing. He's signed by John Hammond, does what appears to be a kind of Bob Dylan tribute record in part with a very scrappy set of musicians. And then they play live a lot, and the band coheres. I mean, Born to Run, interestingly, he, he fired the drummer, so, so it's Ernest Boom Carter is a drummer on Born to Run, and no-one who ever plays that song can ever replicate his drum break no, in the middle. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah. It, 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 I th- I'm sure I've read Bruce saying, I mean, I don't even know what he did there, and... And nor does Max Weinberg, you know, and we've never managed to get it. Um, but they make this record, you know, they slave over that record. That's it was right. recorded in two different studios. Yeah. They put stuff on, they take stuff off. But it is a kind of amazing thing. So anyway, he comes to London and plays a show that he, that they play everything fast and they play everything hard. And it's like a punk version of Springsteen's live show because they've got off the plane. They're free. They've never been out of America. Yeah. They can't get a cheeseburger. <laughs> and they're really and then they so they play that show and he thinks it's terrible says uh, you know i don't want to ever think about that again they go to sweden they come back to london a week later and much more relaxed and they do this party like show which goes on for like four hours and it's very different from the first show and then you know and you went to the first show. i went to both oh you went to both yeah yeah well, I got both, tickets at hammersmith? both at hammersmith a week or so apart and the interesting thing is, in 2005, they're, they're doing a digital reissue. Of, and he thinks, I should look at this, some of this stuff. And he realises he hadn't even known that they'd recorded and filmed the, Hammers, the first Hammersmith show. And it's amazing. Right. It's every bit as good as I remembered it. It's, it's phenomenal. Is it a lot faster than the second Everything's show? fast. Right, it's really, really hard. Is. And, yeah, and yeah. Steve Van Sant is all over it. Right. And they're just, it's kind of like, it's very, very different from from the looser party time stuff. They, they're compressing numbers and they're not doing those kind of very, very long intros. 
to songs where the intro would be about 10 minutes, like Pretty Flamingo, the intro would be 10 minutes and the song would be about two minutes at the end. Um, <laughs> and it's really worth watching. It's a phenomenal performance. Can you remember which of the two shows you took that fabulous picture of? First show. First show. I borrowed okay. the... Um, Chelsea Art School camera. <laughs> a Pentax. Pentax. Black Pentax. Yes. I still wish I'd nicked that camera. That's such a good camera. Yeah, and I was about four rows from the front, so I just concentrate on... It is a brilliant photograph. It's a yeah, it, 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 most of the others are out of focus, I have to say. He didn't stop. I mean, he... No. The, they, he's they, the none of them he's stopped. A, he's a, he's a seriously yeah, dynamic. He never, never stops moving. Yeah, yeah you take astonishing. No, I, no, I've only seen him live once, but I thought he was amazing. I mean, just so much energy. And the show and seemed to go on for four were hours. Were you a fan of, self, say, particularly born to that, yeah, yeah. that yeah, song, like I say, that record? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I say, it did make a huge impact on me. Yeah. I thought it was extraordinary synthesis. Yeah. And the river was amazing. And there were a couple of tracks on that. that were, I think they were live. Well, one was Hungry Heart and the other was Promised Land. Promised Land was on um, Darkness. Darkness. So the Edge of Town. Ah, well, I heard them live, the, the live versions of Hungry Heart and Promised Land, and they were incredible, I thought. I kind of fell off after... But I, around I, the time of the river, I preferred his earlier, funnier work. But after um, the river, you know, the more R and B infused but stuff it, was what I really. It's loved. interesting. After the river, he goes to Nebraska, doesn't he? Yes, which I because, never liked. Oh, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I know you're not allowed to say you don't like Nebraska. Well, of course, it's, uh, it's it's got this new currency due yes. to my my friend Warren Zanes's book, which is. Yes. I mean, my God, what he how well he's managed to do with this book. I mean, he got Bruce to yes, talk to, talk to, to him, him for absolutely. Which is he'd go, he'd go back to the house where he recorded it. Yes. yes, and yeah, they actually go walk mm. around the house, don't they? And I just saw Warren Post, there's a gig in Nashville with The Great and the Good, playing all the songs of Nebraska. <laughs> I mean, it's, be- it's become a Warren's good career. Idea. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I have to confess, I never really became a fan. You know, I think I found were. it I too, slightly too reactionary, <laughs> in a, in a, sonically reactionary in a way. I think it's got a really haunting quality, particularly, <laughs> particularly on. You're Atlantic. talking about yeah, Nebraska yeah, specifically. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you're yeah. talking more uh, general, generally. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I can appreciate that he's really good. It's just, it's just not for me. You know? mm. it's, it's, it's a little too male. Yeah. You know? I was talking to a friend the other day, and I, and when I think of Bruce, I saw him a few times in the eighties, and I always just think of his biceps, his glistening <laughs> biceps and tight t-shirts. Well, it's very it American. All, it's, it's very so American. Right. Quintessentially, I think when I was a kid, it was one of the first sort of rock albums that I heard because it was like lying sure. around the house. I can't yeah. have been much older than about ten or something. I put it in the CD player. I was like, "What's this?" Mm-hmm. You know, and it just to me at that point, it was like. This is America. This is like an yes. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, it's not called all the giant USA neon sign. No, no, yeah, yeah. Sure. But, I mean, I mean he's, or, or barn. Although it's a deeply ironic song about the Vietnam yeah, War. Yeah, of course, of yeah. course. No, no, I mean, you know, there's also kind of in the eighties between him and Bob Clearmountain and the massive snare drum sounds, and mm. it became to kind of encapsulate a certain sort of sound of an American rock record, mm. which I despised. Mm. Frankly, you know, I mean, you know, weirdly, I think if I, probably in a five years' time, I'll probably could go back and listen to all his albums and find all kinds of stuff I really like. But it was, it, I just shut down. I wasn't mm. listening to his stuff. I 
I mean, this leads rather neatly into um, <laughs> the fact that Bruce is one of the interviews in Jan Wenner's Masters. The Masters. Uh, now, we're talking a little after the fact here, but uh, there can't be many people listening to this episode who have not heard or read about this uh, furor around the interview that Wenner gave to the New York Times a couple of Saturdays ago and subsequent apology if anyone doesn't know he basically denigrated black and female musicians and short version then the philosophers of rock which of which Bruce is one of them were, were all white men and how this was allowed <laughs> so to weird. happen I, 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 the, I don't the, know I, mean, but, I, read, I read it when it was in the New York Times and I, I did think this is astonishing and the guy does push back at yeah. one point he's saying I was looking for people who are articulate and, and, and the interviewer says come off it you're trying to tell me Jody Mitchell isn't articulate and yeah, he says exactly. he, he says well Stevie Wonder not articulate yeah, and, like, and he says well they, then he goes on to try and to try and explain himself he says they don't philosophize about rock music the way I'm looking for and he says if you think you can get a philosophical essay out of Janis Joplin go ahead and be my guest well you could have got that too she was extremely articulate and yes. that's right yeah. but she, uh, unfortunately is, she was dead as well yeah. I yeah. never interviewed any any black or female no, musician which is weird because I remember the issues of Rolling Stone I've mostly kept are things like you know, eight pages on Al Green. Yeah. Uh, an astonishing piece on Al Green. Um, astonishing pieces on, you know, Bobby Womack and Cy Stone. I mean, it's a kind of... Obviously, he wasn't... He, if you read his biography... I don't recommend it. I've, I read excerpts. <laughs> it, it's you mean the, the one he wrote the after, one he wrote Joe, after Joe, Joe Hagen's fantastic? Yes. Well, Joe, Joe Hagen's book is really illuminating, it's, it's I thought. I, I found it revelatory because Rolling Stone was so important to me in the yes. 60s yeah, and yeah. 70s. And then I had this question at the back of my mind, which wasn't just about Rolling Stone. It was also about me. It was also about the culture that we are all yes. part of. So thinking, once upon a time, it used to be kind of progressive and innovatory mm. and forward-looking. And increasingly, it became kind of narcissistic and about and, and backward looking, obsessed, and yes. and where and and Joe, I think Joe Hagen puts his fingers on you know the two poles of the John Lennon interview in 1970, where Lennon really comes out with his kind of his version of what the Beatles were. I was the genius, and the and, and the and the, the rest didn't understand how brilliant I was. And 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 then 1980, he gets another interview with Lennon, who is then shot dead the day after, and and so he has this amazing cover story, and he has these amazing photos that Annie Leibovitz took of John Lennon naked being cradled by Yoko Ono which in retrospect looked like a pieta it looks like a, de- a, a dead body being cradled by the mother figure and so that that is a kind of culturally uh, that's a good way of putting your finger on how the culture changed and became more obsessed with itself and became more backward looking well, there's a really interesting counterfactual as well as if if Ralph J Gleason had been more involved in the magazine what would it have looked like but one thing I, I wanted to draw attention to is like you can tell from so the Rolling Stone apology is Jan Wenner's recent statements to the New York Times do not represent the values and practice of today's Rolling Stone. Jan Wenner has not been directly involved in our operation since 2019. <laughs> our purpose, especially since his departure, has been to tell stories reflect diversity of voices and experiences that shape our world, etc. And in the interview, he says, I've not been interested in anything that Rolling Stone's put out since I left. I don't read it anymore. I don't care. Which I think, you know, it's not that one needs telling after he's been so explicit about it, but it just really kind of crystallises that he just doesn't give a shit about anything that's not 
you know, I mean, a white I, bloke. Could, I mean, I was, I was talking to my wife about this. And could, he, could he possibly have got out, out of it by saying, listen, I'm an old white guy. This is, these are my friends. These are who I listen to. That's my thing. You yeah. know, you've got to indulge me. But he doesn't say that. No. He says, these guys are the philosophical geniuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, down. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's no, another I mean, funny moment where he's like, yeah, maybe I added half a star here and there, but who cares? We're all just having a good time. And it's like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, man, interestingly, what a way to undermine the whole, the whole idea of criticism. It, when, when we talk about what's new in the library in a minute, interestingly, one of the pieces we're going to talk about is this Jim Farber interview with Niall Rogers from 1979 for Rolling Stone. And it's a really, really interesting piece. But the headline is, Chic is less than meets the ear. So that was a sub. Obviously, uh, Jim never didn't write that headline. That's some sub basically channeling a lot of white rock people and his editor in particular's view of things like disco and dance music and mm, black music. Mm. Yeah, yes. I've Into a headline right. which doesn't bear any relation no, to the piece to itself. The piece is no, about. no. I mean, you mentioned Joe Hagen and he, after, after what erupted uh, from that New York Times interview, he tweeted, can we still, do we still say tweeted? What else do you say? X. A quote from the late Ellen Willis, who was an extraordinary yes. music writer, mm. for, like for the New Yorker and other publications, but she refused to write for Rolling Stone back in the day and described it as viciously anti-woman. Mm-hmm. She said it habitually refers to women as chicks and treats us as chicks i.e. interchangeable cute fucking machines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 1970. Yeah. yeah, wow. I mean, wasn't there a headline when they called Joni Mitchell the old, old lady, lady of the, of the year. year? Yeah, and it was just about <sighs> the, the guys she dated. Yeah, Graham yeah. I mean, and, and she was profoundly insulted and demeaned by that. And I mean, yeah, it's a... It's a yeah. it's and it's, you know, I mean, you, you can't use the excuse that they were of their time and other people were writing different things because yeah, other people were writing different I'm Lillian Roxon in the New York yeah. Daily News she, she wrote one of the first reports on Stonewall there's the actual riot itself and, yeah. and was heavily involved in the women's movement and so on and so forth lots of people yeah. were writing about this stuff at the time yeah you know and so well and to bring it all full circle to go back to the Let It Rock era I know Let It Rock definitely can't pretend it wasn't a boys club uh, it was a boys club a, a left wing intellectual (laughs) there were very few women writers who've got a look in there but street life he wrote interviewed patty for penny valentine was what really had a yeah Hmm. the great penny valentine and and some others that's right yeah so i mean do you it's interesting do was street life did it feel like less of a boys club make I guess so. I mean, I, I didn't have that deep a relationship with it. I remember I somehow got a commission about Paddy Smith out of them. And I thought they were trying to be more Rolling Stone in that they weren't explicitly music. They were trying to cover um, sport and all kinds of other sectors. And they were trying to diversify away from the music press. I mean, we will, of course, get feedback saying, you're a boys club. Yeah, yeah. Which where is true. Are the, where are the women in this? Which is frankly true. Though I think the one thing I will say is that we really make it our business to highlight all the great women who wrote about pop music, going right back to the early Especially centuries. the ones who were really unregarded for it, like you know, writing for teen magazines. Well, it's writing very well com- for teen magazines. Completely. Magazine. Luckily, there, there, there is some sort of movement to recognise a sort of more general cultural level. There are people writing about, about the you know, extraordinary people, you know, Judith Sims and people like that, who were really pioneering writers. More yeah, but but, but, great but for, for me, one of the great discoveries of my job is just how good women were writing about pop music before the apparent invention of rock 
journalism yeah. by Rolling yeah. Stone and, and, and Crawdaddy in 1966 67 you know yeah, exactly. um, you know I mean there are so many of them it's yes just, no, no, it's, it is a, it is a fair criticism of us in that sense and I think it's just something that we we can continue to be aware of and we can continue mm. to do our best to address mm. you know but can in, I just say who wants to read Jan Wenner's book I mean, well, who's the, what's its audience? Really interesting to see how many. Uh, it, I mean, it, he was due to. Ironically, this is probably done. It's more good. It's a whole bunch of people yeah. buy it. Just see how. Well, he's been, he's been cancelled like, as we speak. He was due to uh, be a guest at the Montclair Literary Festival in New Jersey last Sunday, and he was cancelled from that. So, I mean, it'll be. It, I, it, how many copies will it sell? Um, I mean, hopefully, it just sinks. Right, like that's the that's the hope. Yeah. I mean, uh, hopefully, it'll, uh, the, the, the biography we're talking about, which is just fantastic. Hopefully, it gives that a new lease of life. <laughs> the sticky fingers. Yeah, yeah, yes. that's really good. Yeah. But, but the mean, Masters is just a bunch of old interviews God, with yeah. Bob Dylan, and yeah, and there's a new one with Bruce. I think that's the only new element in the book. I mean, I think one of these. I mean, I did allude to this earlier, but one of these people have not pointed out is the reason that Marvin Gaye or Curtis Mayfield or Joni Mitchell or Stevie Wonder on the book is because when I did not interview anyone like that. No, I mean, I, as far as I know, I don't think he did. He had his boys club, his own boys club, yeah. which was all the people in that book and the late Robbie Robertson and yeah, so mm. forth. People yeah. who, when they, when one of his reviewers would give him the new album bad review, like the Stones, that, he would rewrite it or add a star. No, what, what, the, what, what, what he also did, I, forget, I was looking through the issues it's from like 1979, whichever really, um, or 1980, whichever Stones album is, got a, a big but bad review. Dirty and then, work, probably. Then the he wrote a, a, a massively response. praise review for the, ne- the next issue, came out <laughs> the next issue. I mean, this is actually what we this, we really think about this Rolling Stones record. Yeah. Yeah. But also he did talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as being almost like his personal fiefdom. Yes. He, yeah. he, was, he was the deciding voice on who was in and who was out. Yeah, and and he's the, been ejected. So. The final yeah. knife in the back, yeah, or in the front, frankly. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, he's no longer on that board. I mean, it's... it's it, Good how, riddance, How yeah. he could... I, it's the myopia around this that I find extraordinary. Mm, yeah. um, in 2023, I mean, I, you know, I... I I had lunch with Richard Williams, and he said it's just staggering. Mean, it's not staggering that happened; it's staggering that it's happening now. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. And you know, this is a man who took a long time to come out as gay. You know, young when I mean, he took a long time to come out as gay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that a lot of his whole thing is about a sort of pretense about you know what's right and what's good and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should talk about some of the pieces you guys have added yeah, to the I, library. Yeah, I've got quite a lot, but I'm just, you, I'll, I'll try and keep this as short as possible. This Dizzy Gillespie to Max Jones, Melody Maker, 1965. Had Gillespie listened to Albert Tyler? Yes, I had this record of his, and I called my friend Ox- Oscar down. He lives on the floor above me. Without showing him the cover, I told him it was my latest record. <laughs> I borrowed my wife's little gramophone and played it on that. He looked at me and listened and finally said, where did you get that? Then my wife came in and asked, what do you do to my machine? She thought I broke it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love that. Norman Jopling um, talking to Ike Turner on the very first Ike and Tina Turner visit to the Britain in 1966, for Record Mirror, and talking about River Deep. This is Ike. I like the track, then I like Tina's voice when it was put over the track. 
But I, I didn't like it when Phil put on the 26 voices and all the strings. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean rumour has it that Ike really had nothing to do with that record no. at all. No. He was just in a, a, a passive observer. Yeah, in fact, I believe he wasn't even in the studio. Passive-aggressive observer. Passive observer. <laughs> <laughs> Or just, just, just aggressive. aggressive. <laughs> I don't think it was much passive. <laughs> um, uh, this week, um, we, you know, we got these two new writers on board, brothers Ronnie and Michael o- Oberman. Uh, Ronnie wrote for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. from 64 to 67, then his brother took over from 67 to 73. This is Ronnie, the younger brother, interviewing James Brown about Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 1965. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love this shit. Funkier zero. James Brown says, it's the story of a cat who has a family. He used to be a real actor, but he, after he became a family man, he decided to cool it. Then he decided he wanted to get into the act again. So he comes in the front door dancing and acting real sharp. That's, that's Papa getting Papa's a brand on his bag. I love that. That's marvellous. Papa's got a brand new bag. Oh, no, we've got a, In fact, it's interesting because I just read the... I forget it's the Times magazine or something, interviewed one of our, our great writer, Barbara Sharon, and she talks about how she did this article for Crawdaddy in 75 and interviewed Stephen Stills and said Stephen Stills is one of the most repellent people she'd ever, ever met. <laughs> um, and it's basically he's just, bring, he's just drunk the whole time. You know? mm. And he says, basically, CS and Y were very sanctimonious. There was something about the vibe that bunch put out that was annoyingly sanctimonious, and I was part of it. And yes, I'm equally guilty. <laughs> Can we just insert here the, the chapter in Rock on the Road about CSNY, which is, which is fascinating. Just David Downing wrote that, and you were there taking pictures of them, you know, literally as they were setting up on stage, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I sort of did, I did two chapters on it, because of what I called, what I called the, the, the symbolic and the, and the practical. And Mel Bush. Because, yes. yeah, yeah, I mean, Dave Downing, who was a Let It Rock writer, wrote a, a chapter called High Mass at Wembley Stadium about <laughs> about the values. And, yes, yes. And, 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 and I think, you know, it, I mean, yeah. it, it, be- it begins rather neatly saying the crowd is well-defined, the young dudes are out at other football grounds, and there are no black faces it's, it's the children of the British Empire sitting in their stadium. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> um, wow. Um, yeah. and, and, you talk about all everything that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, then, the I, then I went, to, the, then I went yeah. to interview Mel Bush, who was yes. the promoter behind it, and just yeah. to discover how do you put together that kind of a concert on that scale. Yeah, and, yeah. and I guess, you know, I, I guess. You and know, you make the point in your intro, which we're featuring on the homepage, um, where you, you talk about it's, it, it's a phenomenal thing that this concert sold out Wembley Stadium. They'd only made one studio album as Crosby, Stills, Nash. Yeah, yeah. They hadn't, like, toured for, I don't know how many years. I mean... What year was it? 74. 74. 74. 74. I, remember, I remember thinking about going and, and, and not going. And <laughs> sort of regretting it because obviously the band were there. And yeah. I mean, it was I an mean, amazing I mean, I mean it, was, it, was, it was three people, wasn't it? It was Joni Mitchell, it was the band, and Crosby, Stills, Nash yeah, & Young as the headline. Jesse Collin, yeah. Jesse Collin, don't forget. <laughs> Yeah. It was I Most went, I, It was very weird to see because the, the band came on at two in the afternoon, which seemed that in sunshine, not in sunshine, it didn't really work for me. That you know, it was a was there good music played by, yeah. by anybody? I mean, yeah, Joe, there are bits I've of video of it. There's bits of video. Music. It's it's. There's, a, there's an astonishing performance of Don't Be Denied by Neil Young, yes, which yes. was the musical highlight talking. of the set for me. Yeah, yes. me too. Me too. And there's what a song. Yeah, that is a great song. And um, something else, they would take 
Taking I mean, it over the edge, put, putting it over the edge, a kind of unfinished Neil Young song is really good. I mean, they had this cultural resonance. It was because, quite indulgent. I mean, they, they just recorded one album together, which was that. Deja Vu. Yeah. 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 But, but the, I mean, they recorded um, Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, which was used in the movie. That's and of course, Deja Vu, isn't it? Their yeah. version is on. And, and of course, there was her recorded Ohio as... Um, Neil Young's Fantastic. account of what happened after yeah. uh, Kent yeah. State University. Yeah, yeah. So they had this kind of, I guess they had, they had this kind of historical significance. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I'll the end more stuff. Uh, Chris Lookson, new writer we've just recruited, yes. interviewed Todd Rundgren. Uh, basically, it was the utopia period, Todd Rundgren, 1977. And this is a typical artist moaning about rut writings. Rut criticism to me is really the most narcissistic masturbatory art, as exemplified by Christgau Consumer Guide. I don't really think rock criticism makes any difference at all. It's solely for the purpose of satisfying the people who do it. The literary <laughs> side of pop music is corrupt. It's all true. Because they don't, have to, they don't have to answer anyone. No one reviews the reviewer. <laughs> well, we just actually have been reviewing it's, the reviewer. It's like Zappa moaning and bitching I, about rock criticism, isn't it? It's so pathetic. You no, know, I'd expect better of, of Rundgren, who's one of my heroes. But welcome Chris yeah, Nicholson to the Fox. Well, she indeed. sent a wonderful picture yeah, yesterday for her writer's page I, I must of her from 1984. Five in what she describes as the best record store ever in America, which in the world, Pier Plattas, um, <laughs> in Hoboken. And it's, it's a wonderful picture. Frank Sinatra's so, um, hometown. We'll be adding lots more Chris Nicholson. Uh, this, yeah. I mentioned earlier this Jim Farber, Rolling Stone interview. Loads of stuff I could quote from, but there's really one great thing I, I, I love is, is 15 years from now, maybe Chic will be thought of as really innovative. Disco is the new black sheep of the family, so everyone has to jump on it. No one says rock and roll is repetitious now. When it first started, everyone said that. Right now, if I were into rock and roll, I'd feel behind the times. You know, I mean, he's 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 such an articulate. I'm talking about masters who could be interviewed. You could interview Nile Rogers yeah, forever. You I, know. Loved, I loved. I, I did read that piece yesterday because I figured we'd be talking about it in the context of Rolling Stone and black music and all of that. And I love the fact he was he he said he idolised Mick Ronson. I know, I know, and and, and also when, the, when we got the whole was, concept of sheep yeah. from Kiss. He wants to have a group that had an impact yeah. on disco that Kiss had on kids. <laughs> They uh, so I mean look we all love disco I yeah. think here but Chic definitely did sort of transcend disco in many ways they yeah. weren't one of the great bands oh they were just yeah. I mean, oh, forget yeah. it. they were like I mean, as great as Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones you know they had, they had their three great albums yeah. you know and like like most bands lucky to get as many as three great albums you know but God those albums are fantastic oh, you know? and what a guitar player yeah. and uh, lastly oh, this is uh, Paula Hewitt for very in fact it's our earliest Wham interview 1983 for the NME of all people which is pretty fantastic fascinating and this is they're just literally started having hits and this is first of all it's george says but look at your car andy look at the car listen to this tell him what you're going to have done with your car have you got a gut taunts george with a smile <laughs> actually i had one of the wheels sprayed gold andy says a little shamedly and it doesn't, <laughs> and it doesn't look too good i was going to have the wheels sprayed gold and have ajr monogrammed on one side <laughs> At which point George says, you see what I mean? That, that is fairly indicative of Andrew. Oh, that's so <laughs> sweet. I mean, we talked about it the other day, but that wham dog is oh, so wonderful. Yeah, no, I mean, and and Andrew really brilliant. comes across so yeah, The other thing is, well, is that, it? yeah, it does. after they broke up, that George was, stayed immensely fond of Andrew Ridgely. They stayed great friends. Really? Andrew Ridgely happily walked away, having yeah. made a fair, decent amount of money, you know. <laughs> Um, he had had his ten minutes. He had his ten minutes in the sun. Yeah, you know there was something very nice about the way the end of Wham and start of George's solo career worked worked yeah. out. I think. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, uh, yeah. You know. 
Jasper, what have you got for us today? I've got a few things, one of which is, actually it's from a review of Bruce Springsteen's High Hopes, which is the album released in in 2014, so just a little call back to that segment of the episode, but it's fine, it's Richard Williams in Uncut, and at the end he speaks to Tom Morello, who sometimes plays with the E Street Band, and uh, Richard Williams asks him, a lot of us have dreamt of playing with the E Street Band, what's it actually like? My take is that it's not a dream come true, as it's nothing I ever dared to dream. (laughs) I am not a casual Springsteen fan. He is the only friend of mine I subscribe to a fanzine about. I have every conceivable bootleg. (laughs) To be on stage playing Born to Run every night, it's hard to wrap my head around. My MO for whenever I play with the E Street Band is do no harm. (laughs) (laughs) They've been a great live band for more than 40 years without me in it. So first of all, don't mess it up. Which I imagine he probably didn't say mess. I think he probably said don't fuck Fuck it up. up. But, uh, yeah, Yeah, I just thought that was really good. Then Carol Cooper in The Village Voice, how Nona Hendrix captured the world of Captain Beefheart. She made with Gary Lucas a sort of album of Beefheart songs. I didn't know that. And it's it's fascinating. Gary Lucas, one of our writers. Yeah, exactly. Is that the only covers? Beefheart covers album? I mean, I can't be. No, it can't be. But at the same time... Didn't Herb Cohen? Like oversee, oh, or maybe some oversee, kind of some kind of beef. Yeah, probably. Ago, I think so. so. Cal Cooper speaks to both Nona Hendrix and Gary Lucas, and and Nona Hendrix says, "My favorite writer of all time, besides Shakespeare, would be Leonard Cohen." Admits Hendrix, "I'm somewhat addicted to lyrics and how people find a different way to say what we already know. People like Joni, Prince, Stevie Wonder, and Marvin Gaye can tell stories that are socio-political commentary as well as sexual. These are my influences, and I put Don in that category. So I just thought it was a nice rebuttal to." Uh, to Mr. Wenner. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jan, we're really sticky. <laughs> and then lastly, there's a piece you added, Barney, hip-hop iconoclast Romelzi's prolific art has long been obscured. That's starting to change. Chris Campion in the LA Times in December of last year. Romelzi, hip-hop artist, rapper, mm-hmm. friends with Basquiat, although they fell out, founded what he called gothic futurism. And I thought it was interesting. The show's centrepieces are 21 garbage gods, elaborate life-size full-body costumes meticulously crafted from the detritus of modern life. Max Wolf, former director of Red Bull Gallery in New York, who created an extensive retrospective, Ramelzi Racing for Thunder, describes the costumes as far more ceremonial objects than objects of art. But built as living sculptures made to be worn by Ramelzi during his performances and MC, each had its own personality, mannerisms and mode of movement. The garbage gods inhabited him as much as inhabited them. This cast of superheroes and supervillains populated a sprawling cosmic space of his own devising. He also made into miniature maquettes as proof of concept for potential action figures. And I found that really That's fascinating fantastic. because there's this great link between hip-hop and comics. And I think there's a, there's a book to be written about hip-hop and superheroes and the idea of the superhero within hip-hop culture. And this sort of ties it all together with art and with... And he, he was, of course, on Beat Bop, produced by Basquiat, which really still stands... We were listening to it earlier. It's like yeah, still a great, record. great record. So I just thought it was a really cool short piece about, about Ramelzi, who's someone who doesn't get talked about that much. Splendid. Beautiful. Wonderful. This is the mellow they call the railwell, the rockstar with the rhythm that a shot can spell. When the shake up kick the wish up in the morning, gotta rate with the rhythm like a number one going. MC quick, just to make it in the butter. Shot with the rhythm, I'm a number one. Last I just wanted to wrap up by you sent us some notes ahead of this episode, Nick. <laughs> which which were which were very handy. Oh, and the crap. last thing on I'm the list was myself. Maybe the last thing on the list is, went on writing about Bob Dylan obsessively after rock career had evaporated. Articles about Dylan at 60, Life and Life Only are on RBP. And you have indeed written a number of great 
Dylan pieces, um, which we've been able to essentially publish for the first time on RBP. And I mean, the, the life and life only Dylan at 60 essay is is really mm. wonderful and it's very long it's very very good I really recommend it to any Dylan fans listening to this thank you so much for yeah, joining us brilliant. today mate. Really, oh, really, really, good fun. really wonderful speaking thanks for inviting me it's been very good much. do visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews check to see if your local library subscribes to Rock's Back Pages if not maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's biggest archive of music journalism and we will be back in uh, a fortnight with Mr. Billy Bragg, no less. But in the interim, we will all say goodbye now. Bye. Bye. All the ladies, T-Money. All the homeboys, T-Money. Money making, rock on it. Money making, rock on it. Boogie down it, rock on it. Room LC, rock on it. That concludes episode 161 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Mick Gold, the host of Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocksback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.